Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Welcome to this new series of At The Margin. We'll kick off this new series with a slight departure from our usual episode format, where today's episode features a roundtable discussion on the implications of the Ukrainian conflict for energy and environmental policy in Europe. This roundtable discussion took place at a recent Economics of Sustainability workshop at the University of Oxford, where colleagues from various institutions, including the University of Oxford, Technical University of Berlin, the University of Graz, Utrecht University, among others, all participated. Indeed, how about I let each participant introduce themselves? I'm Kirk Hamilton. I'm a visiting, prof- visiting professor uh, at London School of Economics. Francisca Funke. I'm a PhD student at the Technical University of Berlin and the Potsdam Institute for Climate Impact Research. I'm Theo Kong, and I'm a postdoc at the Technical University of Berlin. Brian O'Callaghan. I'm a PhD student here at the University of Oxford. Fernanda Moura, a research associate at the School of Geography and Environment at Oxford. Inge van den Bijgaard, uh, assistant professor at U- Utrecht University. Karl Steininger, economist at the Wegener Center for Climate and Global Change at the University of Graz in Austria. Linus Matter, Robert Bosch, junior professor at uh, Technical University of Berlin. And François Cohen from the Energy Sustainability Chair of the University of Barcelona. We discussed a number of topics, including the short-term policy response, the implications for the transition to renewable electricity, and also agricultural policy. One person who didn't introduce themselves earlier is Professor Cameron Hepburn, who kicked off the discussion. Cameron holds many titles, including My Old Boss. He's perhaps better known as the Director of the Economics of Sustainability Program at the Institute for New Economic Thinking at the Oxford Martin School. He's also Director and Professor of Environmental Economics at the Smith School of Enterprise and the Environment. At the time of the workshop, Cameron had tested positive for COVID-19, so he joined our discussion remotely. So there may be some background noise during his opening comments. So over to Cameron. But when the invasion happened, it became pretty clear that, of course, the financing of um, much of this was contingent upon Western funds flowing in exchange for Russian fossil fuels. And uh, obviously Germany is the major party here, but we did a very quick analysis of the UK's role. And since the annexation of Crimea in 2014, 
The UK has sent around 22 billion pounds to Russia for uh, largely gas um, to be provided to the UK. Uh, and at the price of one of the new tanks that we could find, that's about 8,000 tanks uh, worth of fossil fuels that the UK has sent to Russia. And I think the implication of that for environmental economics is, is kind of fairly obvious. I mean, we're moving into a world where actually energy is democratically available. It's sunny everywhere, even in this country, and it's windy everywhere, especially in this country. And we shouldn't be in a situation of needing to send vast sums of money across the world uh, for whatever purpose it ends up being used. And I think what we what we will find is that while in the short term there's been a very um, sharp pivot towards finding new sources of fossil fuels that are not Russian, with Russian fuels being diverted to other buyers, mainly China and India, in the medium to longer term, one of the, you know, in a sense, helpful consequences of this war will be that there'll be a much greater focus on energy security, that renewable energy is more secure energy, notwithstanding mineral supply issues, and it's also cheaper energy. So I think we'll see the collapsing of the trilemma. You know, could you get cost, security, and environmental features met at the same time? You know, in the past, the answer was you couldn't. But I think, if anything, this conflict has accelerated the way to a world in which you can get all three of those criteria met by clean energy. And I think that is actually one of the very few good things to come out of the invasion. I know, I just wanted to say that I've personally found it striking in the last two months that the argument for let's accelerate decarbonization because energy independence is a good thing politically. That argument's been, oh, it's been around for a long time, like mostly as a political rather than an economic reason for decarbonization. And I felt that, frankly, not many political actors weren't very interested in it. Perhaps there's, there's a German bias in, in, in my perspective. And now we can sort of get way more people on board, at least in our politics, which may be more that of Central Europe, to say we also want decarbonization because there's a dividend here for, for peace and stability. Sort of before the last two months um, wasn't so much there. And I think that's somehow surprising because, yes, there is no war in Europe, but beyond that, I mean, there are many other authoritarian states who supply us with, with oil, oil, coal, and gas. On the other hand, I would have said the kind of the most obvious problem for now is rising gas and fuel prices. And, you know, we have many discussions across Europe what to do about that, um, sort of along similar lines of some of the work we discussed earlier. Um, while, you know, the economic case for compensating some of the poorer households and we have the data that especially for gas this is very difficult because there's a lot of heterogeneity at the same income level so there's some households that will really be struggling from exorbitant gas prices at a certain income level it's economically straightforward it might not be quite so straightforward to do it on an uh, on, on the, from the point of view administration how do you find those people you actually need to compensate because they suddenly face way higher gas prices i think i'll stop here yeah, no, absolutely. Um, and just on the issue of, um, you mentioned, we have the current issue now of rising prices. How do we, what's the policy response in the short term? There have been calls across Europe to really decrease tax levels in general or give a price subsidy for all. And that's really crucial not to do because otherwise we just 
delay our trend transformation. We should make sure that we really focus on those who need it. And as Lino said, it's difficult to find them out and to do it administratively. But using social criteria, that would, would be one way. Um, and just to make sure that we use the prices for what they can help us for. They can help us for, nobody would say, well, my gas heating system hasn't isn't written off yet. Yeah. <laughs> so because now, yeah, I'm willing to change it if I have the funds, if I can finance it. So that, that that's a second issue for the low-income group to allow them to use funds from somewhere else, contracting models or other issues yeah. to get out of it. One thing is prices are going up, but shortages are not necessarily coming forward at the moment, thankfully. But one reason for that is that people are adjusting their demand in response to the rising prices. Um, but as you say, it's quite difficult. Sure. Yes, so one policy that we've seen already implemented in, in Germany and also in, in France, I believe, maybe you can help me out there, um, is that fuel prices are actually really uh, lowered with a direct subsidy. And maybe, you know, if you can avoid that because it is regressive and we know that people on high incomes far the by far have by far bigger cars that they drive um, and so the implications of, of those in terms of inequality would be would be quite large and um, there's certainly policies that you can target in a different way like subsidizing public transport which um, we've also seen in Germany there's actually a ticket forthcoming in the next three months for nine euros and every every um, yes city to to make public transport really widely available there are problems with that um notably how to meet the higher demand that this will cause but yeah there are different ways than just yeah reducing the prices and just yeah. coping with inequality effects i wanted to kind of add to the the last points like one one thing that i also find particularly worrisome about this response of okay let's lower fuel taxes to kind of compensate for these increasing fuel prices is that it, it's likely going to be difficult to increase those fuel taxes again because like hopefully we won't be in this situation forever and at some point um these these fuel prices are going to fall again at least to, to some degree um and and when that time comes it will likely be very difficult to kind of reinstate those those taxes and that's that's something that 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 worries me that uh, in the long run this is going to be this policy might undermine um, Absolutely. Uh, it's very easy to reduce the price of something. It's much more difficult to increase the price. So it's almost like it's a, a short-term or long-term solution for a short-term problem, essentially. So a very good point. Absolutely. Um, okay. Uh, one thing. So one thing as well when we talk about the higher prices is, is that, and it sort of relates to what Cameron mentioned about the fact that okay, we have a greater incentive now to a shift towards maybe more renewables and it helps us to hedge against high fossil fuel prices. I wonder, is there anything that we can say about innovation? Will it be stimulus to innovation? Will it help guide the right type of innovation? Will it, will it this pattern of innovation be the same as what would have happened maybe absent the, uh, absent the crisis? Any, any thoughts from anybody on that or anything? Yep, Francois, far ahead. Well, if you have very high prices for energy, which should drive innovation towards, uh, well, uh, um, technologies that don't use these resources, so it should have a drive on innovation, at, at the very least in the short term. Whether this would have an impact on the long run would depend on what's the level of the prices 
after the crisis. That's an interesting point. And I want, so like when, if I'm a firm, when I'm making, deciding to reverse an R&D, I think about the short-term prices, I think about the long-term trajectory. I wonder, do they see it as the bump in the road and then we're back to the old days and therefore the discounted future net present value of my investment is hasn't changed a whole lot. Um, I suppose that's that's the other aspect of it. Um, but that's good. Yeah, very good point. Uh, Kirk, I think, you, do you want to come over here? I'm, I'm living in the US and, and, and you can see it every day, the way it's, it's playing out. Um, I mean, you have, um, the price of gasoline is sort of the most important thing in the lives of many Americans, it seems to me, uh, because they're mobile all the time in their cars, right? Um, so it's a very big um, part of their expenditure. It's a very big, big political issue um, as a result of that. And when, they, when the price goes, and the oil price goes, and petrol prices go up, then the president starts, you know, the United States starts shaking in their boots because um, there aren't many really good solutions to to that. Um, the, the bad solution they've come up with is, well, what we'll do is just increase the supply of American oil um, and uh, drive down domestic prices that way. So they're handing out all kinds of new uh, leases for exploration for petroleum and for a new exploitation of petroleum and all the rest of it. So it's it's a, it's ra rather perverse uh, way of um, dealing with the price problem, right? Um, okay, yeah, so. uh, but it's it's happening uh, now. Um, and uh, of course the, uh, the, the big oil companies, which have a lot of political in influence, or say yes, yes. <laughs> we'll, we'll gladly go out there and drill some more. Right? Yeah. So, uh, when when the sanctions on coal were announced, I thought a similar issue. So, for example, you've the likes of Poland and Germany, if they're not getting their coal from Russia, I thought, well, what are, are they going to do? Are they going to are they going to increase the domestic production? I don't know what the what happened, but that was the question that came to mind, and it seems to be similar to what you're what you're what's finding in the U.S. So it's it's not necessarily the um, the renewables. Incentive. No, no, no. Um, Cuts across the whole, all the, all the different parts of the energy economy. Um, and just, well, we have you, Kirk, here <laughs> already. You who has worked with the World Bank. I wonder, are there any knock-on effects in the developing world or anything that, that has come to light in that regard? Well, I mean, all I've seen so far are the, are the, the in a sense, the obvious ones. When well, you know, when, when prices for um, things like energy go up, um, then the developing world is certainly going to feel that as well. They're not as motorized as the rest of the world, uh, but nonetheless, uh, they have energy needs, um, and so they're going to feel that for sure. Um, I mean, the killer there literally is is food prices. It's not yeah. it's not petroleum, right? Um, I mean, uh, if we want to look at the effects of uh, the, the war. Yeah. That's where it's playing out uh, in a big way, and uh, mm -hmm. you already have countries in uh, East Africa who are suffering from droughts, and now, right now, you suddenly have cost of importing food sure. shooting through the ceiling, right? Uh, there, there, there could, there will be a reaction, you know, some some re response to this, but it, it's going to require a lot of ex external funding as well. And you know, the, the World Bank has started to talk about that. The I'm the U United Nations as well. Um, so um, there will be a response, but it's going to be a very hard year or two. Yeah. So, when you, so in terms of 
funding to help support households to meet their food bills, essentially. Yeah. Okay, brilliant. And related to the agriculture, I think Linus, you had some thoughts on that um, and how it's playing out in environmental policy uh, in Europe. Do you want to say something? Yes, hello again. If I can talk a bit about European agricultural policy, because somehow, you know, this is perceived. Um, uh, first, I mean, of, of course, it's clear that um, the countries at war there, Ukraine, but also Russia, are major suppliers of food. Now, first, it doesn't mean for our countries in Europe that, you know, there'll be a food crisis here in the sense that we have enough supply ourselves in terms of wheat or in terms of relevant oil, etc. But, you know, you can see some boring developments in um, European agricultural policy, where I perceive the debate in a way that um, many actors who weren't quite so on board to say there needs an ecological transition in agriculture to mean more ecological farming, more spaces left for um, biodiversity protection. Um, this sort of consensus that came from the farm to fork strategy around the European Union saying, okay, finally we're going to push um, ecological uh, motives in European agriculture is unraveling. That consensus is unraveling around people now say, okay, well, now there's a food price crisis, so we should ditch ecological objectives. We'll have sort of less of the land we we're planning to have for ecological objectives because we need to produce more food. And as some of us argue in research, um, I think that's sort of the wrong way around. The ecological objective is not what you should. Um, Ditch, but you have to find other ways to deliver on the ecological objectives. While now there's a changed, um, there's there's changed uh, market prices for food, and there's a, there's a changed um, market conditions, and it does seem the biggest lever is um, animals in the equation, because just simply because we use so much agricultural land for. Um, crops that we then feed animals rather than we use agricultural land for feeding um, humans directly. And of course, sort of uh, many, many uh, farm animals are very important and, you know, they, they're sort of creatures who have rights, but then sort of, I, I don't think sort of, it's also not very clear that 90% of our animals is mass factory farming and you can't really sort of very legitimately arguing that that's a sort of a practice that continue. Now, of course, some of the lobbyists will tell you, well, you know, this is a longer term transition and, you know, we can't sort of easily like within weeks or months change our food system so we produce more food for humans rather than for animals but I just don't see for now the kind of the political reaction to say well now we have all the more a reason to start a food system that involves less animal product consumption I think I'll stop here and okay. anybody else no thanks Linus that was that is yeah very good point um a few other things as well that sort of came to my mind um so uh Political economy is one issue that we've sort of discussed today as being of prominence when it comes to climate policy. How do we, you know, align what's best maybe for society with political decision making and then with what what citizens would like? I wonder has this sort of changed in a certain way because all of a sudden we are now in a situation where there's certain there's a distrust of Russian gas and perhaps would the corollary of that is that we've greater trust in renewables. I wonder, will that help put greater more push behind renewables, or will we see maybe what was discussed by Kirk and others that we have maybe perhaps a greater push? It's it's less of a renewables push, but more of a indigenous push. I wonder how is that likely to play out? Yeah, uh, just about like the political ac acceptance of some policies may be shifting. So while we are talking about the carbon tax, probably uh, not the right moment to uh, introduce this. Yeah. 
I, I think that longer term, there may be also problems of political acceptance of other forms of uh, issues that would be coming with climate change. I mean, we we are uh, going to host a million of Ukrainians that have left their homes. So we see that there is additional pressure on uh, accepting migrants in uh, uh, Europe and uh, that are, I believe uh, completely legitimate. We'll have also more migrants from climate change and there is a need to start thinking about the policies to uh, host these people in the, in the medium to long term. So and I, I believe that uh, if we have conflicts uh, that add on to the, the number of people that are forcefully displaced, then uh, uh, naturally it will add pressure to how we, we host people that, uh, that come from abroad. Absolutely, yeah, very, very interesting. Inge, did you want to say something? Yeah, in, in response to your question of is, is this going to be kind of good for the for the climate transition, like I think it's it's going to be a bit of both. Like absolutely, this is going to push renewables, but simultaneously, um, what I think we're also observing is that it's making it much harder to phase out coal, um, which obviously uh, comes with a lot of uh, unfortunate side effects in terms of the, the the climate transition and in many ways like in like in the past and still like the argument of we need energy prices to be higher be it through carbon pricing or what any other mechanism this is really to kind of create a wedge between what our producers receiving and what our consumers paying and to kind of uh, kind of yeah, so to kind of in introduce a wedge there, and and the high energy prices that we see today, like there's there's no such wedge. We see high prices for gas, but coal is still extremely cheap, and especially with energy prices being so high, it's going to be much more difficult to make this case of well, we need to give up on this other source of energy, which is ex still extremely cheap. Um, so like yeah, it's it's not it's not only it it's not only not good news. No, no, no. <laughs> You know, just uh, related to what was said before, I think um, if we analyze the situation from the perspective of uh, shock responsive systems, I think long term, but starting now, it would be very good if we started improving targeting, because this was a big issue in the pandemics, uh, especially in developing countries. It's a big issue now, and it's going to be a big issue again. We don't know exactly for what reason, so I guess that it's one thing. If you think in terms of social protection systems, like you're mentioning, there has been a lot of work in terms of making these systems structurally responsive to shocks in a way that is efficient, that really finds uh, the people that you want to prioritize. Um, so so that, that would be the, let's say, the structural change that would be very useful. So make sure the systems are in place. The response will be short term, but the system is a long term structure social infrastructure that we have uh, in place. Do you have any more detail? That sounds very interesting. <laughs> so in terms of, do you mean like something that would automatically correct for a shock? Yeah, yeah. yeah. so for instance, uh, a natural disaster or other kinds of income shocks that could affect specific populations, energy prices could be included in the whole. Okay, so how would that work then? Would it, how, how, how would it play out? You have a yeah, you would, you would use your current infrastructure for making the transfers to top up and maybe you have an extra payment for uh, if you have people that already are beneficiaries, but then you also have infrastructure in place to identify pe people who have to enter the system because of the shock. So then at least you have tools to make your decisions. Yeah. Thank you. Following from that, I mean, it's a, it's a very interesting, uh, it sounds like a boring issue, but I think I find it all, all the more interesting to say across these crises, whether it's the pandemic or it's now a gas price shock, um, 
it seems like our societies are not very prepared in terms of the administration to say, can we have a kind of a registry if society collectively decides we want to give a specific group of people money? We don't have it. And I understand that, you know, in a kind of Anglo-American administration system, there's sort of more challenges around, you know, there's not even a kind of a register for people who live there, perhaps, in some way. But in a kind of continental European debate, we have that. Like, you know, a city knows who's registered there. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't seem such a big step in terms of, terms of data issue to create such a regis register and you know this is sort of um, a larger point around the economics that you know you can see there are good reasons why um, a government shouldn't arbitrarily be able to, ta to tax people although it's a kind of a you know a nice idea in fundamental welfare economics that everything's beautiful once we can kind of arbitrarily redistribute but I don't so easily see how as a um, not such a good idea to say we as a society create some sort of register that we can give to people money once the society decides this is now a good idea because this next the, the next disaster is striking and there's a particularly affected group no that's very and that's exactly gets to the gets to the nub of the issue in that we have ideally some sort of tax beautiful tax benefit system but then we have an administrative problem and even bringing in an irish context to this when the response in terms of a lump sum transfer it was done to electricity consumers so it, because there wasn't such a register but there are like there is a register of who pays for electricity bills so that sort of overcame that that barrier um francois did you want to contribute yeah sometimes maybe i mean i i liked uh, the the uh, your idea about um, using existing policies, so for example, some some countries have a um, social tariff for uh, electricity users, and therefore the registry exists. I'm thinking uh, Portugal has this. I think Belgium also has this, and so it could be it could be used in a way of protecting even more the energy poor when they're affected by policies. And so I think we could also use what 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 there is in fact but uh, think in terms of targeting since we have this information use it to to reduce uh, uh, their vulnerability to uh, economic shocks yeah so to get to linus's point of we need a register well then we have like there are data sources available that 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 we can we don't have to start from scratch essentially one one small point on on the data side of being able to find the people and, and to deal with them in a way that's going to be effective uh, and fair. Right? Um, and, and that's where, um, you know, if you, have, if you have a population census, uh, you always, you have the option of, of in including a very, very detailed questionnaire to a subsample uh, from, from your, um, uh, your, uh, your census. Um, which is a wonderful data set. I mean, you get yeah. micro data with incredible detail, right? um, and it's it's a tool that's probably not used as much as it could be. Yeah. Uh, I know I know in Canada, I'm a, I was at St Statistics Canada for some time. Um, it, it was um, it was the basis of social policy in Canada. Basically, everything to do with social policy in Canada was possible because of. The, sub, the subsampling from the, the census, and the first thing the conservative uh, prime minister did was to try to ban banish that questionnaire, and he succeeded. Oh, was it a subsample, or was it a it's a, sub it's a it's a subsample with specific questions where you're trying to dig deep, deep, deep into right. the issues that are that are interesting. Right? Okay. So, so it's not uh, but but you're um, but what you're taking is a sample from a population census where sure. you've got 100 percent so coverage representative of of yeah exactly, and and you're. Uh, and you, 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 the census itself is giving you just a, a very, very high quality, you know, 
set of, of data that you, you, but you can't, you're not going down to the, the micro level, it's a big difference. Right? Okay. Okay. Yeah, no, so but it's, it's something that could be ex exploited more because it's, uh, it really can make a big difference. I mean, literally, yeah. the entire social welfare system in Canada ran on that. Yeah, so we've been talking about uh, that we need to target um, payments towards vulnerable households, and I think that the word that's missing so far is energy poverty. So these people, we have this concept in research, which is energy poverty, so people with relatively low income and relatively high uh, energy expenditures. And we know how to identify these people, so there are this research, like this is where research can contribute because we know how to use objective indicators to identify uh, these people within the population, and then you can much, much more efficiently target payments towards these people. And so I think it also uh, highlights um, uh, an interesting fact about the welfare system, I mean, essentially in Europe, that most of the, um, of the screening or most of the targeting is done through income. And energy poverty is not only income poverty. So uh, energy poverty, of course, partially overlaps with income. But you, people that have to commute more, people that live in poorly insulated uh, dwellings, uh, and so on. So it, I think it calls also for uh, uh, for using a, a larger set of indicators, not only income but also efficiency, uh, I suppose. Exactly uh, the energy expenditure ratio, uh, these kind of things, and that way you can channel public uh, public money in a more in a more efficient way towards people that actually need it. No, th it's a real issue in energy poverty. I've, I've done a bit of work on it myself. And how do you measure it is the first question. And how do you, and who do you identify as the ener energy poor and um, and getting the data for that. But as you were saying, like, as we've been discussing here, there are many data sources we can get. I think one issue as well is that there are a lot of data sources, but you have to bring them together to actually get the information. And that can be, that can be difficult. So one final thing then that, uh, came to my mind and I wonder if has anybody any thoughts on it do you have any perhaps recommendations in one for the short run or maybe one for the long run well in in the short run I think also something like what the other people have seen saying it's about helping the most affected so it's uh, helping the the people from Ukraine and also helping the poor people in uh, our countries and in the developing world to face with uh, higher energy prices and facing also higher food prices and in the longer run it's about planning for the energy transition uh, increasing our energy security and betting on renewables and installing the right policies to do so um, I, I find a bit puzzling why we don't see more of a push for energy efficiency programs. I mean, we, yes, there are some voices in our debates, but somehow I'm not quite so clear why, you know, they're not more forceful. Maybe somebody has some ideas to say, you know, I think now would be the right time to sell to you know, relevant parts of the population who might not be quite so convinced to say, okay, now we need the insulation program. It's not going to help us within weeks, but it'll help us within a year or so if a lot of we have a lot more kind of retrofitted buildings, etc. Yeah, I, I feel like when people see prices go up, the solution is bring prices down, whereas it's not necessarily, well, how do I make sure I have the same resources? And perhaps it need, needs a better sort of th thought on that. Is there any, did you want to contribute? Yeah, sure. I can give you maybe one of these here. Well, apologies for joining halfway through. So if I'm speaking out of turn, please let me know. But it's been great to hear from everyone so far. To brief points in relation to the question of what what should a policymaker's response be um, that I hope are additional. The first, I think we need to spend a little bit more time thinking about developing contexts post-COVID 
a lot of the work that we've been doing has been considering the ridiculously small fiscal space that is available to many of these countries to deal with you know, some of the largest economic crises in their history. And now to compound that with food scarcity and everything else, there's a lot that we need to be doing to think about our own countries, yes, but we also, I think, need to be considering how to um, support support those overseas. And one of the things I found hard of the pandemic is just seeing how um, how those communities and nations have been basically forgotten. So. You know, on the side of policy bankers, I think just not, not forgetting those communities for sure. And I think everyone here agrees with that too. The other side, which I think is an opportunity, um, is to take some of the energy security rhetoric that has been particularly prominent in the US on material supply chains and consider how we might also address some of the other systemic issues in those supply chains. One of my concerns in um, sourcing transition minerals transition materials is that there are so many we were speaking of this earlier so many human rights issues and environmental issues associated with their sourcing that are a real risk to our own climate transition right as soon as public becomes fully aware of the atrocities associated with minerals in evs for instance that yeah. are, are kind of a central part of that supply chain i think it really puts at risk um the the broader transition and I think it's really pertinent that we address those risks. So now with the US focus on um, having control of those supply chains, perhaps it's also an opportunity to risk, to address some of those other systemic risks uh, associated with those supply chains. My thanks to all the workshop participants who offered their voices to the podcast. We covered a wide breadth of topics, some of which I may return to in future episodes to tackle in greater depth. Issues like agricultural and environmental policy, the issue of food shortages in particular, uh, are among the topics that will be very interesting indeed. So hopefully I can find somebody who will be uh, interesting to talk to about those things. Thank you for listening. And if you enjoyed this discussion, please share with your friends or on social media. And all the best. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 